Thank you, bud. Dean, former president of the president's class, thank you for that prayer. We do need to pray for Alan Lynch. Uh, he's trying to do the, the work of a, of a superman, uh, Ken Stoner. Uh, it'll take four or five people to replace Ken Stoner. Amen. And I can guarantee you that uh, not many of them will want to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to visit the hospital before a 6 o'clock operation. Uh, so let's remember to pray for, uh, for Alan Lynch. Also, the Lord has just put a sort of a burden on my heart this morning as a result of something that was said uh, just in passing, a passing conversation. And in light of the situation in the class right now, I just feel that next week that we need to pray for the sick. So what I want to do is that you'll see that next week's lesson deals with Jesus healing a lady who was sick for 18 years. And uh, what I want us to do is just throughout this week be thinking of people in our class that are sick. They may be coming here every week. They may get up out of bed and make it, but they're not doing real well. And uh, at the end of that hour, about 10.30, I'd like it's just to, those of us, I ask those people to come up, and others who just feel burdened, to lay your hands on them, and we're going to pray for them. You know, uh, we were just told that uh, Joy Davis uh, was shopping, uh, twisted the wrong way, dislocated her hip. Uh, you know, she's been going through things for the past couple of years. Dr. Davis, he has this tube in his side uh, with this infected gallbladder. They're saying that could be in there for six weeks. Uh, they can't operate. Uh, they could have operated, but they said there's so much scar tissue from previous operations, they didn't want to put his body through that one more time. So this is a long process, and uh, I'm not just talking about the aches and pains of life. I'm just talking about there are people in our, that we love. We need to ask the Lord to, to heal them. You know, I don't know what the Lord does in those situations. I only know what the pastor said this morning is true, that we can get a glimpse into what the kingdom of God is like. When the kingdom comes in its fullness, there'll be no sickness. Uh, there is sickness now, but the Lord sometimes reaches down graciously and touches people. doesn't touch everybody. He didn't, touch every, he didn't heal everybody in the world when he was here on earth, did he? But he did stop and touch some people. And we're going to ask the Lord to touch people next week. So if you, uh, I'm not going charismatic, as you know. So anyway. But that's one good thing the charismatics do. Amen. They believe God. They believe God, and we can do that. Okay, let's take our Bibles, and let's open up to Luke chapter 13. Luke 13. It's good to have the Whartons back with us. Some of you didn't know they left, but they did. <laughs> but they are here. And uh, we would like to invite all of you to come to lunch. The Cantina Laredo, which is right across from the Lakewood Country Club, is a great restaurant. Uh, they got great soft tacos, chicken tacos. I can recommend that. And with 20% off, that's a great deal, isn't it? Okay, let's look at Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Now, since chapter 11, Jesus has been interacting with a crowd of people who have followed him as he's moving toward Jerusalem and toward Passover week. This crowd has consisted of his disciples, uh, probably not just the 12, but you know, a couple hundred people that believe that he is the Messiah and they're following him. Uh, it consists of the Pharisees who are 
religious and political leaders, and curiosity seekers. And from these discussions that Jesus has with this crowd, we can learn several things. We got several lessons out of this. First of all, we learned that uh, we shouldn't put God to the test. It's one of our lessons that we've learned out of these chapters. Uh, we shouldn't ask for signs. Instead, we should just trust God. Uh, next week, we're going to just trust God to heal some people. We're not asking for any signs. We're not going to go on television if God would do something. Just trust God. Number two, don't hide behind a religious mask like the Pharisees, who inwardly are greedy and self-consumed, but outwardly they look pious. We shouldn't do that. Three, don't operate or make decisions on the basis of fear. If you're fearful, your life will be hindered, and if you're fearful of death or whatever the consequences or that your possessions could be taken away from you, uh, then if our government would happen to change, people could pressure you into denying Christ rather than losing your own life. The fear of your, for your life and the loss of possessions. So don't operate on fear. And uh, finally, don't act like there's no tomorrow. Jesus talked last week about uh, there will be a judgment day, and many people just act like tomorrow is not coming. And he said there will be a reckoning day, and at that time he will divide the crowds. In fact, he's dividing people right now, but there will be an ultimate dividing of people between wheat and tares, and some will be judged and the others will be vindicated. And he told the crowd that they needed to discern the times. Remember that last week? He said, you can discern the weather. You need to be able to discern the times in which we live because you should see that judgment is near, even at the gate. So with that background, we did that for the Wharton, so they would catch up when I left. With that background, we look at Luke chapter 13 and verse 1. Now there were present at that season some who told him, told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, after Jesus said, hey, you need to be aware of the times and about judgment that's coming, they said, we are. We can give you an example of it. Remember the time when 3,000 people were slaughtered by Pilate and he mingled their blood with sacrifices? And they were, so when Jesus said, you need to read the times, guess what they said? We are reading the times. There's an example that judgment's near. There were people who have died. And uh, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, he said there was an event uh, in Jesus' day where it was an evil, an evil incident where the Jews were coming, and there were always a couple hundred thousand Jews, coming to Jerusalem during the Passover season to sacrifice their lambs and then eat the Passover dinner. And when they took their lambs to have the lambs sacrificed, Pilate's troops came right into the temple area on their horses and literally slaughtered 3,000 people. It was an act of terrorism. It was a terrorist act designed to drive fear into the pilgrims who had gathered there for the Passover so they wouldn't think about overthrowing the Roman government. That's how the Romans operated. And in the end, there were body parts all over the temple court where the sacrifices were made and human blood and animal sacrifices 
were mixed together. And uh, this is, uh, th it was an equivalent to uh, September 11th where 3,000 people died uh, in one setting. So uh, <clears throat> these were Galileans who were pilgrims who came to Jerusalem who died. Now look at verse 2. Jesus answered. So they said, we're aware of the times. We know judgments here. There were a group of people that died not too long ago. Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered these things? Now remember what this theme is. Uh, what Jesus has been talking about. He's been talking about division, dividing people into two camps, and judgment falling. And you need to be ready for it. That's the theme. Dividing people into two camps and judgment falling. And this crowd says, Oh, we know an example of that! 3,000 people were slaughtered by Pilate, and that was God's judgment on them. And so Jesus said, Oh, well, let me ask you a question then. <clears throat> Since you can read the time so, so well. Uh, and the question is in verse 2, and the key word in that question is the word worse. The word worse. Look at it. Do you suppose that these Galileans, meaning the ones who died, were worse sinners than other Galileans? Because they suffered these things? So why does Jesus use the word worse? Because the crowd is using this group of people as Oh, they, judgment fell on them. I guess they deserved it. Ah, God's already dividing. There's a group that he said needed judgment. Bam! It just happened. And so, Jesus, and why did they do that? Why is this group right here bringing up this story about 3,000 people dying and being judged? Because they're trying to justify themselves. They're saying, see, they deserved it. But guess what? We're still alive. See? And so Jesus says, well, let me ask you a question. Do you suppose that they were worse sinners than the other Galileans, and that's why they got judged? Do you think that's the question? What do you think about that? <clears throat> or, to put it another way, do you think that they were worse sinners than you? And that's why. They got judged. How would you answer that question? Jesus said, do you think they were worse sinners than any other Galileans? That's why they suffered? How would you answer that question? That's the question Jesus asked. Do you think he, they were worse sinners than you? Now watch what he says. Verse 3. I tell you what? No. We're all in the same boat. But they weren't worse sinners. But unless, look, you repent, you will, what? All likewise perish. Jesus issues a warning and he says that judgment can strike you. God can strike you with judgment at any moment. Now notice in verse 3 the word likewise. I tell you, no, but unless you likewise Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Now, how did they perish? 
Because if you find out how they perished, then you'll know that unless you repent, you will likewise perish. How did that 3,000 perish? First of all, they perished suddenly. They perished suddenly. They went into the temple, going to do something religious, showing they were religious people. And where is there a safer place on earth than in God's house, the temple? I know a lot of people have gone to church and some crazy maniac came in with a gun and started shooting the place up. They just died suddenly, just like that. I mean, they thought, well, there's no greater place on earth than to be in God's house. But guess what? How did they die? They died suddenly. And he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. How else did they die? They died unprepared. They were taking a sacrifice to put it on the altar, and they never reached it. They were going to the temple to offer a sacrifice for their sins, and their sins were never forgiven because the sacrifice was never made. Even on their way toward forgiveness, before they got it, just like that, unprepared, unforgiven, and unless you repent, you too will likewise perish. Suddenly, unprepared, unforgiven. That's why salvation is always now. That's why today's the accepted time. That's why salvation is never tomorrow. You say, well, I'll wait till next week. I'll wait till the 11 o'clock service. You could have a stroke right now and you won't even be thinking clearly at 11 o'clock service. Between now and next week, you get Alzheimer and not even remember who you are. And then it'll be too late. And because you're not forgiven and because you're not prepared, then the only thing left is judgment because you haven't repented. You see, that's what Jesus is saying. They're trying to say, oh, we know a group that's been judged. And Jesus says, yeah, but well, of course they've been judged. But are they worse sinners than you? No. Well, then unless you repent, guess what? You can be judged too. And when the judgment comes, it's going to come suddenly. And it's going to come unexpectedly. And that's why we always need to be ready to die. Because once you're dead, and if you die unprepared, guess what? Then you've crossed the line, the line of no return. No, no, no second chances. That's why you have to prepare to meet God before you die. And since we don't know when we'll die or what our circumstances in life will be, we always have to be ready now. Now, this was what we would call an evil incident. Wouldn't you say that? <clears throat> Some people die at the hands of evil people. And that's how they go into eternity. So Jesus brings up another incident. And this time he talks about an innocent accident. We go from an evil incident to an innocent accident. Look at verse 4. Now, Jesus brings this one up. They brought up the first case. Jesus brings up a second case. Jesus says, Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Ah, here's an accident that takes place. 18 people die in this accident. What happened? Well, we know that the Tower of Siloam fell upon them. Now, we're not sure where that tower is. We think it was on the southeastern wall of the city of Jerusalem. 
Others think it was an aqueduct that was being built, but we're not sure. But all we know is that there was a structure, a tall standing structure. And people were working on it. And other people were just passing by. And while they were passing by, just like with the Twin Towers, some people working in the Twin Towers, other people passing by, just like that was all over for 18 of them. They went to work expecting to go home that night and play with their children after work. Some went to work expecting to go out to a luncheon engagement. They never had their luncheon engagement because the tower just fell upon them. It was an absolute accident. Now, look what Jesus says about that in the middle of verse 4. Do you think that they were worst, worst sinners? Than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? And what's the answer there? Were they worse than anybody else that lived in Jerusalem? Now notice that in the first case you have people in Galilee that were killed. Galileans. Ah, you know, Galilee was up north. Had a bad reputation. These were northern. They lived up there in unclean territory with the Gentiles. They were Jews, but they were living up there with the unclean people, probably rubbed shoulders with unclean people all the time. Ah, they died. Pilate killed them. Probably got what they deserved anyway. <clears throat> Jesus said, well, let me uh, bring up an incident. How about that tower that fell and was just an accident? Just an innocent accident. And uh, it wasn't Galileans that was killed. It was Jerusalem. Jerusalemites that were killed. And they were just walking by and suddenly they were all gone. Just like that. It was a tragedy. Do you think that they were worse sinners than the rest of the people who lived in Jerusalem? And the answer is no, but they died. And that's how God took them out. Some people were taken out at the hands of evil people, and some people were taken out by accident, some people were taken out by, by sickness. You see, the real question is not why did these people die in the accident. The real question is why are we still alive? Amen. Because were these people worse sinners than we are? No. So it's not why did they die, it's why has God allowed us to live? Amen. Because you know what we deserve? The wages of sin is what? Death. Yeah. <laughs> We're all sinners and we all deserve to die. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, I tell you, no, they weren't worse sinners. But unless you repent, you will all, notice that, likewise perish. <clears throat> we will perish suddenly. We will perish unexpectedly. Now, for some reason, God's allowed us to live. Which means that we now have time to prepare in light of this message. Now remember that Luke is writing to a church, probably 55 or 60 A.D., long after these events in Jesus' life took, life took place. Why do you think Luke decides to put this story in his gospel? For his audience living 30 years after the fact. Why do you think he's telling them this story? Because they too need to be prepared. Just because you're a religious person, just because you've, you know, walked an aisle, uh, 
that doesn't qualify you for anything. These people didn't have time to repent. Once the tower fell, once the soldiers came into the temple court, but we do have time to repent. See? Now, what does it mean to repent? It means to reorient our life toward Jesus Christ and his kingdom. It means we stop living behind the mask of piety. We confess our sins. We start handling God's resources that he's entrusted to us in a manner that reflects his character, and we reach out and we try to meet people's needs. And since he's entrusted the gospel to us, as the pastor said, then we are also responsible to tell other people about eternal life. Repentance means turning away from ruling my own self and turning to Christ and coming under his rule and submitting to his reign and to his kingdom. That's what it means. So when Jesus says repent, that's what he's talking about. It's talking about turning back to God. When we do that, then we're ready for death. Now, if we don't do that, and we die, the only hope we have for is judgment. If we do that, and we die, then the hope that we have is resurrection, and entering into the kingdom in its fullness. You see. Now, to drive this point home, Jesus tells a story. Okay? So look at verse 6. <clears throat> He also, that's Jesus, spoke this parable. Now he wants to drive this point home. And here's the parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. So here's a man who puts a, plants a fig tree in the midst of a grape vineyard. It's taken care of. It's fertilized. Everything's taken care of. I mean, this is treated like, you know, this was a man's business, and he says, now make sure you take care of my fig tree. So now he comes hunting for figs. Now, when he gets there, he's expecting to find figs because all the foliage is there. The leaves are there. It's fig season, and when he goes seeking, it says he finds none. Now, it's very interesting. It says seeking. He was seeking fruit on it. Why do you have to seek fruit on a fig tree? Because of the way fig trees grow. Our next-door neighbor has the largest fig tree that Lynn says she's ever seen. And it comes right over in our yard, and we don't care. And, but, you know, we have an acre and a half out there, so... It's just an area that we sort of ignore. That. <laughs> but there's this fig tree. And our neighbor calls Lynn once a year and says, Victor, out. you want to come and get the figs? So when you look, I look out the window, I don't see any figs on that tree. All I see is the leaves. You know why I don't see the figs? Because they grow and hang under the leaves. The leaves mask the figs. And so this man goes, and he says, I'm going to get some figs, and he has, has to seek for them. He gets up under there and looks under the leaves, and guess what? No figs. No fruit. Now what happens? Look at verse 7. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and have found None. 
Cut it down. Why does it use up good ground? Just cut it down and throw it into the fire. It's taking up space. Now remember, this is a parable, right? This isn't speaking about trees, this parable. This isn't about horticulture. This parable is about people. Would you agree with that? <laughs> the parable is about people. How people are supposed to be producing fruit in their lives. Now, how long has this man been looking for figs? What does it say? Three. How long was Jesus with the crowds and with the people in his ministry? Oh, three years. Does that sort of might mean something? Maybe Jesus has been hunting for something in these people's lives after being with them for three years. I mean, if we always say, well, if we just could walk with Jesus, things would be different, wouldn't it? Remember, this isn't about figs. This is about people. In fact, I would go a step farther and say this is really about the nation of Israel. It's about the Jewish people in a historical context. I want you to keep your finger here for a second, and I want to show you a passage. Look over at Isaiah chapter 5. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 5. And when you get there, look at uh, verse 1. So here's what the prophet says, and God speaks through the prophet. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 1. I probably won't read all of this, but I'll go through it quickly. It says, the prophet says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved. This is God saying, speaking through the prophet. A song of my beloved regarding his, look, vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Now, I guess if your vineyard's on a very fruitful hill, what should your trees be producing? Well, I think so. He dug it up and he cleared out the stones, and you'll see why all this is important. He planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the midst. He also made a wine press in it. He was really expecting results, so he expected it to bring forth good grapes. And it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O oh inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? I've done everything I can. I did everything to make this vineyard produce the fruit. <coughs> now remember, this is God speaking. I've done everything possible. It's had every advantage. Why then, when I expected to bring forth good grapes, does it bring forth wild grapes? And now please tell me, uh, tell me, you what I, let me say that again. And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. Watch this. What are you going to do to your vineyard? I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, <coughs> and break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns, and I will also command the clouds that they do not rain on it. Why? Because the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is what? The house of Israel. 
And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but beheld oppression for righteousness, but he beheld a cry for help. The vineyard. When Jesus uses a parable talking about vineyards, he's talking about the nation of Israel and the people that live in that nation. Now, he came unto his own. He came unto the Jews, John 1.12 says. But his own received him what? Not for three years. For three years. Now go back to Luke chapter 13. So we have this vineyard which represents people, not trees. It's not producing fruit, and so what's the solution? Cut it down. I've given it attention for three years. Just cut it down. Cast it into the fire. Now look at verse 8. This is what the groundskeeper said. But he answered and said unto him, Sir, let it alone this year also. Give it another year until I dig around it and fertilize it. Let me even do some more digging and some more fertilizing. And if it bears fruit, well, that's good. So what we see is that fruit bearing is the mark of a real follower of Jesus. He's not talking about a tree. He's talking about people. He says, give them another year, Lord. Give them another year in this parable. And if they produce fruit, that's well, you'll know that they are your disciples. Now, fruit bearing has been a topic of three different passages that we've gone through in this past year in the Gospel of Luke. And the key is that if you are a disciple of Jesus, you will bear fruit. If you're not, then the only thing you're good for is judgment. No matter what you look like, no matter how many times you've been baptized, no matter how many owls you've walked, no matter what your profession is, if there's no fruit after a certain period of time, then you're not a disciple. So he says, well, Lord, give it another year. Let's see if it produces fruit in another year. Now, let me give you a couple observations here. First of all, I want you to notice the leniency here. Do you see that? Give it another year. What did the master of the vineyard want to do? Cut it down. The keeper said, be a little lean. lean. Give it a little longer. Give it an, another year. Second of all, I want you to notice something else here. Help's available. Help's available. This guy says, uh, let me dig up, a, dig around it a little bit. Let me, let me fertilize. There are people out there that want to help you. They want to assist you. They will do whatever they can to see fruit produced in your life. That's how, much, how concerned they are for you. They're rooting for you. And also I want you to notice that this speaks of possibility. Despite barrenness in the past, for three years, walked an aisle, no fruit for three years, baptized, no fruit in your life for three years, come to church, nothing for three years, you look like a dud. But, there's possibility, despite barrenness, fruit bearing is still possible in the future. There are some people who just don't produce fruit right away. I think there are a couple of rules that we need to follow. Number one, very famous statement, don't count your chickens before they're hatched. A lot of people do that, don't they? They count their chickens before they're hatched. person walks in all Christian, hi. Christian, Christian, now you're counting your chickens before they're hatched. You don't call them Christian until you see what? Fruit. 
Okay? Second of all, don't say no chickens simply because they haven't yet been hatched. Don't say no chickens simply because they haven't yet been hatched. I don't see any fruit there. No Christian. Don't see any fruit there. No Christian. You know what? Maybe the fruit will come in the fourth year. So you see this leniency. You see people willing to help. You see this possibility. So what Jesus is giving us here is a warning of judgment. But along with that, because there's judgments going to come, but he gives us a glimmer of hope. See? But with that, we see that God's patience doesn't last, patience doesn't last forever. It's only one more year that this vineyard's going to get to produce fruit. Only one more, and then guess what? Does it say anything about what happens if it doesn't bear fruit? Look at the end of verse 9. If it bears fruit, well, but if not, look at that. After that, you can cut it down. So the opportunity to be spared judgment will come to an end. And we don't know when it will come to an end. It could be tomorrow. It could be today at noon. It could be two weeks from now. It could be another year from now. But the day of judgment, sparing judgment, will one day come to an end. And then it will be too late. Now, that's how he ends that parable. Now, interestingly, he doesn't tell us whether the tree ever produced any fruit. We don't know what happened at the end of the fourth year. You know why he doesn't tell us whether the tree ever produced any fruit? Because it's not about trees. It's about people. And the readers who read the parable, Luke's readers, will have to determine whether they will repent and be prepared for death. And whether the fruit will grow in their lives. Because repentance and fruit go hand in hand. How do we get fruit? Through repentance. Through real repentance. And when we repent, then the fruit grows. And so he doesn't tell us. Because the reader has to supply the answer. Hey, will there be fruit in your life? Only you can supply that answer. Will you repent? If you do, there will be fruit. If not, well then you don't know. Suddenly, unexpectedly, death. And then you'll cross the finish line and it'll be too late. Now, interestingly, I told you that Luke's readers read this passage somewhere around 55 or 60 A.D. You know what happened in 70 A.D.? The Roman troops came in to Jerusalem and just slaughtered Jews and tore down the temple. And at that point, God said, I'm finished. Washing my hands of the Jewish nation as a whole. And he turned toward the Gentiles. Not that there aren't individual Jews that will get saved, because obviously there are. But he turns, and that's why Paul would always go into a synagogue and he would preach, but guess what? He'd always get thrown out of the synagogue. And then where would he turn? To the Gentiles. Jesus came to his own, his own did what? Received him not. But he's also the light of the world. And so we see that uh, in this case, ten years later after reading this, everybody, and this would, would have circulated, this piece of paper here called Luke's Gospel would have circulated, and it would still have been in existence ten years later, and when the temple was destroyed, they would think back on that and say, Israel as a nation never produced fruit. And all those who 
decided just to follow the, the Pharisees and their own national leaders, their own religious leaders, instead of following Jesus, guess what? They're destroyed. Their temple's destroyed. They have no means of salvation. They did not produce fruit. Now, let me give you the lesson of all this, okay? Let me give you the lesson. The lesson is this. Lack of present judgment does not mean that you have God's approval. Lack of present judgment does not mean you have God's approval. It only means you're experiencing God's mercy. Because every person in here who died, were they worse sinners than you? No. And God holds back death for a moment in each one of our lives to give us time to respond to this mercy, to repent. But if we don't, guess what? There will come a day when death strikes. And we will cross the point of no return. There's no second chance. So if I were giving you the lesson of verses 1 through 5, the lesson of verses 1 through 5, mentioned twice, is that you need to be converted. You need to repent of your sins and reorient your life toward Jesus Christ and trust Him. That's the lesson of verses 1 through 5. Unless you repent, you will perish. You need to be converted. To repentance. The lesson of verses 6 through 9 is that you need to be converted now. Because we never know when death will come. He's being lenient to us now. There's a glimmer of hope, but God's patience doesn't last forever. Be converted. Be converted now to repentance. Next week, we see in verse 10, Jesus goes into a synagogue, and there he meets a woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. She was bent over and could not raise herself up. We'll be talking about Jesus healing this woman next week. Father, we thank you for your word. It's a sober word. It's a true word. It goes with the word that the pastor preached this morning. The fact that you gave us one way is it an act of your graciousness, you had to give us no way. The fact that you gave us one way was an act of graciousness because we can't be confused thinking about two ways. You've given us one way, it can't be missed. And Jesus is that way. Oh, Lord, help us to reorient our life toward Jesus. Live for him and his kingdom. May we be kingdom citizens in this world, reflecting your grace toward all those around us. In Jesus' name we pray.